This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org slash software. This episode of SE Radio is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from your customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree. Rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com slash SE Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Felina for Software Engineering Radio, live with Michael Fetters. Michael Fetters is the founder of R7K Research and Conveyance, but obviously you know him as the author of Working Effectively with Legacy Code. And Legacy Code is the topic of our SE Radio podcast. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the show. Michael, my first question for you. What is legacy code? When does something become legacy? Is there a, a magic boundary after X years, this code is now legacy? Well, it's an interesting question because there is like a, a dictionary definition of legacy code out there. And um, essentially legacy code is code you've gotten from somebody else. But around the time that I wrote the book, Working Effect with Legacy Code, I um, had this insight that I could basically try to go and help motivate people's interactions with code a bit by going and reframing things. So I essentially said that legacy code is code without tests. And the reason why I did that is because I noticed that having automated testing in place around code made it much, much easier to change. And um, so it felt like such a large difference that it seemed like it was a nice way of framing things. Then you could... Um, say, gee, if I just get some tests around something I'm about to change, um, I can basically go and see it in this different way and start making progress. Uh, so yeah, I still generally use that definition. Um, I won't, you know, it's not the dictionary definition, but I think it serves a purpose. So it doesn't have anything to do with age necessarily, which is the way that some people view it. If I make something yesterday and then I'm working on it today, but it doesn't have tests, then you would say that's already legacy. I would. And the thing is, this is really just, you know, it's just one definition, right? But I think that it's a definition which helps people see a pathway forward, which is good. But it's funny that, you know, after I did that, it's like uh, immediately people would leap up and say, oh, the code I wrote yesterday is legacy code because of that. But that gets you to think about it also from the point of view of even whether, even if you didn't have to, if you have tests or you don't have tests, the things that make your code seem like legacy code are quite independent of age. And um, so there's, yeah, there's something to that, I think. It's interesting and indeed makes you think about code in a different way because that word legacy, of course, somehow implies age and something that's handed down to you. It doesn't really imply something about quality per se. It did have like a meaning in the industry just in terms of when people would get together and talk, it's like, oh, that stuff is legacy. And then you'd have this, you know, this slight like inward shudder. It's like, oh, that's legacy. I'm a little bit scared of it. I don't want to touch it that kind of thing. So I think it kind of resonated with, with that kind of like visceral definition of legacy. Using your definition of legacy, can you give a ballpark estimate of how much code in the world you think is legacy? Oh, wow. Most of it, I guess. No. Um, it's, well, that's, I, I don't really know. And I think that there's, um, there's this thing that I noticed early on in my career, like kind of my little code name for it is um, consultant's disease, that basically people call you in when there's a problem. So you... Um, you know, you have this, uh, this vision that there's nothing but problems in the world. Um, but, you know, I, I am aware of some very high quality code bases in the world, but it's not the typical thing I see because I'm not called in in those cases. 
Um, I suppose that, you know, um, being a lawyer or a psychologist or a doctor, imagine being a medical doctor and then suddenly you have this vision that everybody in the world is sick because you just see sick people day day in and day out, right? Uh, So I'm not really in a good position to be able to judge how much of the code in the world is really legacy code. Because most of the code you see will obviously be legacy. So it might be that there's a huge code base out there, code bases out there that are all really good. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's funny about that too, because when I, um, before I became a consultant years ago, one of the uh, jobs that I had, I was working in a biomedical company and we had very, very high quality code. And it was because we were FDA regulated, but we also had like a very, very long product development cycle. So the, the thing was that we had a lot of time to go and really deliberate over things. I think that's a very rarefied situation. It doesn't really happen all that much. I've been to teams in regulated industries that, don't, that have code that isn't quite that high quality. But um, I think there definitely are pockets out there. It's, uh, it's interesting to note. Do you think that legacy code is getting better? Are, are older systems worse than relatively newer systems because our industry is just moving forward and we're getting better at testing and refactoring? Or is it just the same as it always was? I don't know. What, who said that? There's some famous science fiction author that said the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. I have a feeling that essentially, you know, we the variance has become wider and wider across the industry. There's lots of bad code. There's probably a lot more good code than there has been in the past now. There's a very, very wide range of things out there. Um, I think we're in a better position now than we have been in the past, given the practices that we know about to go and, uh, you know, from the start, create a very valuable set of artifacts, you know, very valuable projects. The big question is, um, you know, interaction in within organizations, um, schedule crunches, all sorts of things, and uh, sometimes even lack of care that can go and lead us down that wrong path. And um, do you think there's a difference between different paradigms in programming and the legacy they create? So for example, is OO legacy different from procedural legacy or functional legacy, or maybe even reactive legacy or microservices legacy? Yeah, I think there are differences. It's, I kind of, I started out doing procedural programming very early on in my career, did a little bit of that and then leapt into object orientation and spent a lot of time in that area. And um, I think that now in retrospect, a lot of the, um, a lot of the work that I've done has been reactive to uh, situations that you find yourself getting into when you're working with object orientation. Just the idea that it's so easy to go and embed deep and encapsulate very deeply within your application. Uh, things are almost like um, silent tunnels to change state, you know, or, uh, you know, IO and deep parts of your application. There's, there are very few constraints within object-oriented code. So uh, you end up having, you know, relatively unconstrained code bases. So, yeah, I think there really are qualitative differences there. There are other things that are the same. You know, in general, the thing which makes hard code to understand is basically going and letting it grow beyond our grasp, letting it grow beyond our ability to go and sort of look at a chunk and see what it's really doing. And that sort of thing can happen in functional as well as object orientation. You don't have the mutable state problems in functional um, quite as often as you do in uh, object-oriented code. So is that a vote for functional? Does that make it easier to maintain functional code? Can I deduce that? Uh, yeah, it seems to be the case. You know, the thing is, it's, um, I think we're still early days on that. Um, you can create massive object-oriented code bases, and there are some big functional code bases out there. I, you know, it's, I can see that there are a lot of problems that are basically going away, but it's really kind of, I think, a bit early to go and sort of um, arrive at the conclusion that it's, um, 
know that it's a, a panacea. I don't think it really is that. I think that there uh, there are other problems that will probably emerge over the next five years or so. You know. Yeah. So you're saying we haven't seen enough huge multi line of code functional systems yet to really know how they would behave. Yeah, that's my my take on it right now. Yeah, and I guess that would then go even more for more modern paradigms like microservices or reactive programming because that we don't have code bases of those newer paradigms even more. Uh, yeah, there's there's that. I, I, it's funny about this though, Decoin sort of, um, I don't know. When you look back over the history of the industry, it's it's amazing. I really kind of pride myself on going back into these things. But, you know, back, there's a lot that was written in the 1970s about structured design and, you know, all the stuff on cohesion and coupling and stuff like that is um, still, you know, true today. I think there are underlying principles that are at play regardless of which technology we use and which approach we use. So, you know, for instance, with microservices, I think it's a, it's a great technique. There are downsides as well to its favor, you know, creating small pieces of code that are pretty much forced to be completely independent of each other gets you um, out of some situations that happen in monolithic applications. But there's there are trade-offs there also. You kind of push a lot of the complexity out into the wiring between components as opposed to uh, within the internals. We've talked about legacy code so far, but I also want to talk about the skills associated with working in legacy code. Do you think working with legacy code is harder than working in a greenfield project? Yeah, I think it is. And I think that it's an interesting thing for us to consider is that is how we react to that, right? Um, having a, a greenfield project, you get to basically start from scratch, uh, make some design choices and see how they're going to play out over time. Uh, very few constraints. In legacy code, you have practically nothing but constraints. You're trying to modify things that you may not understand fully, and you have to go and basically put tests in place as a mechanism for getting that kind of understanding. Um, so it, there are more challenges, but you know we can look at those challenges as being um, positives too. You know we get to kind of like test our metal against um, some thorny problems. Absolutely, but do you, does that mean that you need different skills to work in a greenfield project versus a legacy project or, or maybe different tools? Do you approach problems in a different way or is it the same tool set applied to a different problem? Um, I think there are slightly different tools or slightly different skills, but I think the thing which is common among them is that we need to basically understand our code and we need to know what to do once the code kind of steps outside of our range of understanding. I think that working legacy code is great training for being able to create you know, better greenfield applications uh, from the point of view that you kind of know what it's like to be slightly out of control. And then you basically know the things then that you have to do to keep things within the constraint of you know being understandable. So yeah, there are different skill sets there, but I think that they, they dovetail nicely. So you're saying that Working with legacy code is going to make you a better greenfield developer, which which makes sense, I think. It but can. suppose it comes down to whether you re reflect enough upon it and learn the right lessons. I think. Sorry. Yeah. But suppose you're doing a legacy project, maybe for the first time. How do you get better at it without practicing in the code base itself? Are there any exercises you could recommend or techniques that you can practice getting better at legacy code without doing it in the real project? Uh, I, I think that would, you know, I don't, you know, when I train, I use various exercises to go and get people to try out various different techniques and that's fine. Can you name a few of those exercises? 
Oh, there's like a scheduling application I, I, I you know, provide. It's, these are all around dependency breaking and writing tests. So it's just really a couple of applications I use in, in, in exercises. But I, I think the thing about it, though, is that all of the techniques that you apply in legacy code are really about trying to figure out how careful you need to be and doing something in response to your knowledge about how careful you need to be. Um, so actually, you know, I would go back to the original question and say that actually practicing these things in your existing application is probably the best way to do it. It is the best way. Yeah, because, um, you know, when you're there, you know, there's nothing like being responsible for something to basically make you extra careful. And um, so much of this is about figuring out how to go and bolster your ability to um, understand what's going on in the code and um, then make changes. Yeah, so practicing on the example code base is a bit like practicing swimming on the land. You can practice some techniques, but ultimately, if you really want to get better at it, you just need to have the real responsibility for a code base. Yeah, and that's and I guess maybe the issue is that we just don't have like um, you know too many you know open source code bases that people can say, hey, let's go ahead and uh, hack. It's it's funny to basically have code that doesn't really matter to anybody, and then actually take some time to work with it. I hardly ever, I don't think that really comes up much except in training situations. Yeah, I guess so. So some people look down on legacy projects a little bit. They see them as, as less cool or maybe as less career advancing, less, mm -hmm. less prestigious than Greenfield project. Do you think that that's realistic? Is there some truth in that or do people see that totally wrong? Well, I think so much of it really comes down to culture and, um, you know, how people in organizations uh, see themselves, what, you know, what the incentives are in various different areas. People do start new projects all the time. Uh, I do notice, though, it seems like, at least from my biased perspective, that the, the bulk of the work out there is in existing code bases. So I, I think to the degree that we sort of like recognize that and we recognize how valuable it is, we really are better off as an industry. Uh, I think as well, though, it's kind of like you have a choice in how you see this work. And I think that you know, recognizing that it's a very uh, demanding and exploratory um, uh, type of thing to do. For me, it just seems like it's kind of exciting, you know, to do that. And is it better to motivate developers by offering them a combination of some legacy work and some greenfield work? Or is that not the right way to go about it? Well, it depends, again, on how the incentive structure is organized in whatever organization you have to be in. But a thing that I find fascinating is that in just about any application, you are going to be doing some greenfield work. And I guess the best way to explain this is that, like, um, you know, I guess, you know, most listeners will be aware of, like, the open-close principle that was first articulated by Bertrand Meyer, uh, you know, many decades ago. And um, the observation that essentially you're better off to the degree that you can add code to an existing system without modifying very much of it. Like, you're not modifying existing code, you're adding code to the existing system. And uh, Bertrand Meyer first articulated this principle as... Um, something related to object orientation and inheritance. Um, but I think that's generally true in software engineering is that, you know, to the degree that we don't have to make terribly invasive changes in our code, we're better off. Um, so whenever a new feature comes in, if you can look at it and say, gee, I can modify this class that already has, you know, 20 methods in it and add another responsibility toward, to it, or I can just go ahead and create a new class and delegate to it. That latter approach um, is a form of greenfield. You know, you're basically creating new code and then kind of like, you know, calling it from the existing, you know, uh, application that you have. So I think at a micro level, greenfield work exists all the time in code bases. And to the degree that code bases are uh, well engineered, you're going to find more and more opportunities to go and add new code without invasively changing uh, the, uh, the guts of it. 
Yeah, so what you're saying is in legacy projects, there are also greenfield activities because sometimes you're adding new code. And I would add that the reverse is also true, mm -hmm. that if you're working in a greenfield project, how long does it stay green? After a few weeks, you'll also have areas of your code base already that lack tests and you will do some legacy work also in green projects. So maybe the conclusion here, I hope you agree with me, is that we should stop this distinguishing projects in greenfield and legacy, but we should think more about activities or work or features as being a, a greenfield work item or work project or a legacy work project where you do some modifications and some refactoring work. Yeah, no, fair enough. And I, I think at the very beginning of like the um, the agile movement, one of the things that we discussed a little bit was um, where actually I observed with some friends at one point that. Nobody was talking about maintenance anymore in software, at least at that point in time in, in that community. And I guess it was just a recognition that basically once you start developing a project, it's almost like you're in maintenance immediately because you start saying, okay, now I need the new features, let me add the new features in, but you're always working in the context of something that's already there. Um, so it's like, a, I really love to use the organic growth model for just about, as a metaphor uh, for uh, software. I think not everybody gets to plant the seedling. You know, basically sort of like a, you know, take nurture the seedling from you know the the first shoot into like a you know a small tree or something like that, but the tree still needs care over time, and that's just that's that's the bulk of what software engineering is is taking care of the thing that we've produced and adding to it. And that period for a tree and a code base will be a lot longer after it's already big than that that first initial process. There are only few people that get to work on that anyway because there's only a limited time that it's still green. Yeah, and in fact, I'd actually say it's even before getting to a tree. It's just like when, when the seedling pushes up out of the ground, it's like, okay, you know, it's like this is, at, at this point, it's kind of like we're treating this the same way generally as we would treat a full-grown tree. You know. Yeah, you're, you're already, you've already lost some freedom because you can't move it anymore. You can't decide the type of tree because that was already decided by whoever planted the seed. I like that analogy. It's nice. Yeah. It's funny because there is the thing that we can re-architect applications. So there's a big question or a big um, thing with that is like how much are you rewriting when you re-architect, you know, all these things. But uh, yeah, actually going and taking a, a completely different path in the existing and then whether the existing structure has evolved in an application is often a very... You know, serious undertaking. Yeah, is it a new architecture or the same architecture change? That's that's an interesting. Yeah, and that's philosophical, definitely. Right. I was going to say that. That's almost a philosophical question. Yeah. Let's move on to our next topic. We've already hinted at or touched it a number of times over the course of the podcast: testing. Mm -hmm. so what is the relationship between between testing and legacy code? You have already defined legacy code as code without tests, but without test is very binary. That's zero one question. Mm -hmm. How many tests are needed? What cover, when can you talk more about that relationship between tests and legacy? Uh, definitely. Um, I think one of the things which I find most problematic when I'm dealing with organizations that have been kind of going down this path of trying to make things better is that uh, I try to go and have some target for um, test coverage, right? And um, that's nice, but the thing about it is you can get into a bit of a bind when you target coverage but don't really think about what that coverage means to you. Um, and I guess there's a bunch of different issues around this, but you know, one of them is that you know, not all areas of your code are going to change equally. So you can spend like your entire career on a large code base adding test coverage that um, some of it may you know, legitimately be a waste of time because it just, you know, it's touching areas that you, won't, you simply won't touch for changes. 
So the way I kind of look at this is that tests are a way of asking questions of a code base. And our job when we're developing is to go in and try to refactor something or make a change. And either we understand the code or we want some kind of support for that. So you can hop into a debugger, that's great, in order to go and actually learn more about how the code operates. But tests are the debugger that doesn't go away. If you write a test, essentially you get to rerun it later and actually use it as a bit of a, a vice in a way to kind of like fix you know, the behavior while you're going and making changes. Um, so I try to, when I'm working with developers, go and make them understand that the tests are for them and the criteria they should use when writing tests is what do I need to understand here? And um, tests are an ideal way of going and asking that question and getting answers. So it's not uncommon to have large code bases that have your code coverage kind of hovers in a particular area and moves up slowly, slowly, slowly. And you might look at this and say that's bad, but um, it isn't really. You know, essentially, you just want to have enough tests to go make the changes that you need to make. And over time, you get more coverage, but it isn't really the goal. But how do you know if it's enough? Because the first thing you said as an answer to my question is not every part of the code base needs equal amount of tests. Some parts are more likely to change than others. But how do you know that? Do you measure change proneness of source code? Or do you ask people, users of the software, what parts of the software are important to them? How do you know which parts are likely well, to change? There's, there's all different scenarios here. You know, one scenario is basically that you just want to go and make safer changes in your code base. And um, you're not planning on doing like large scale refactorings or anything along those lines. And in those situations, you just wait for the changes that you need to make. And if you have a particular feature coming in, you say, gee, here's an area of code I need to modify to get this feature in place. First off, is this area of code structured the way it should be for me to add this feature? Is it will be easy to add this feature in? And um, if it's not, then you can say, are there tests around this? You know, if there are, then I can refactor in order to go and put it in the state that it needs to be in to add this feature. And um, if those tests aren't there, then you write those tests. And uh, so you're basically going and letting, you know, the drive of features go ahead and tell you what's important in the code base. Um, and that tends to be the typical way to go with this sort of thing. If you are, uh, if you have an urge within an organization to be very proactive about this, you might have particular goals that you'd want to do in terms of, in service of like a re-architecting project or something like this. But you can also go ahead and look through, you know, uh, your commit history for the code base and uh, find out, you know, which areas have had the most change um, over a period of time, uh, which have had the most bugs. And, um, you know, usually you don't even have to go that far because everybody kind of knows what the hotspots are in the application. Uh, doing some work to go and bolster those areas with tests is, uh, is good also. I'm always triggered by those type of sentences. Everybody knows what the hotspots are. I'm not sure if it's true in projects that people are, are able to correctly identify or, or agree on those. So I would be in favor of using some tooling to, to measure the change proneness. But probably in projects, if many developers have been involved for a long time, they do have some intuition, at least, for where the issues might occur. Yeah, and it really depends upon how much experience each of the developers have in the code base. Yeah, exactly. but, you know, the great thing, that we forget about this as a resource, is that you know any project that's been under version control, we have all that history, and we can just mine it to go and actually understand you know, uh, more about what's happened. You know, if you want to find out what happened in March of 2015, it's there. You can go and find out what happened in the code base at that point in time. Um, yeah, measuring trains proneness is quite an active area of software engineering research. So there are tools and techniques that you could use to pinpoint risky parts of the program. Yeah, definitely. But let's, let's continue this story a little bit further. So you want to add a new feature. Mm -hmm. 
Do you add failing tests for that feature specifically? Is that a good strategy? So you're going to, like you would do in a TDD approach, first write a failing test and then implement it? Yeah, but there, there's a step prior to that. Actually, a couple of steps prior to that. Okay, tell me. Um, and it kind of alluded to it in uh, an answer to one of the earlier questions you had. Um, the way I kind of approach things now is that I think that our code bases are better to the degree that it's we don't really have to change things much to add a particular feature in. So going through that exercise of going and saying, how, how should this code look in order to go and make it easy to add in the code for this new feature? Um, if we ask that question, then we, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we likely identify some refactoring that we need to do. And then the question becomes, you know, is our code, you know, do, do we have enough test support to go and actually enable that particular refactoring? And um, if we don't, then we write some tests for it. And that also, I guess, going back further one step, we have to break dependencies um, quite often in order to go and basically make the testing possible um, in the existing code. So there's like a chain that you have to kind of carry back uh, before you even get to the idea of like, let's TDD, TDD a feature. It's more like, what should the code look like to make this easy? What does it take to actually get there? I want to talk about dependency breaking a little bit later, but testing is one of my favorite subjects. So I want to talk about testing a little bit more. Yeah. So if you're adding that new feature, does it make sense to add passing tests for the part of the code base you'll be testing, but likely not touching? Yes, definitely. Some terminology I've introduced for this, I call this characterization testing. Okay. Um, and I, I think it's funny because I don't think this is spread out in, across the industry wide enough yet. But the typical thing that people are used to doing when they're testing is, uh, or testing existing code, is trying to imagine exactly what it does and then going and figuring what the expected value should be. And then writing a code that goes and, or writing tests that go and exercise that code and seeing where the expected value that we thought up was correct. And um, it's actually way easier than that. Um, what you do is you start by exercising the code and then you find out what the code does. And then you take the values that are produced by the test and then plug them in as the expected values of the test. And um, this kind of runs against most software developers' instincts because they consider that to be cheating. It's like we're going to write a test that goes and shows exactly what the code is doing. But there's incredible leverage with that, though. The leverage is that, I always explain it this way, it's kind of like, um, have you ever fixed a bug and then it goes into production and discover that people were actually depending upon the buggy behavior? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. This happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. And so the thing about this, though, is that when you, I like to carry it back to philosophy. It's kind of like what that really means is that essentially once code goes into production, it becomes its own specification in a way. And it's important for us to know when we deviated from what we've released pre previously. It may be that, um, you know, that uh, change that we make, you know, uh, in a code base may be good or bad, but knowing whether we've deviated from existing behavior is extremely valuable. Uh, so it's a slight reframe with our tests. If we test in this way where we exercise the code, find the values that it produces, put them in as the expected values, and have a bunch of tests, passing tests, those tests don't document correct behavior. They document the behavior. And uh, then you get to look at each test and say, gee, is this really a bug or not, and do some investigation. If it is, you can go and um, change the expected value of the test and um, see it fail and then go and make a change. Just the typical you know, bug correction methodology that most people use. This podcast is supported by Atlantic.net, hosting solution provider of healthcare HIPAA, PCI compliance, and ad tech. If you're feeling the pain of having outdated technology, call Atlantic.net and get the latest security firewall, intrusion detection, backup, disaster recovery, and virtualization. 
Or if you're starting a new project or not getting the results you want from your current providers, Atlantic.net can help you succeed. With fully audited solutions and 23 years in business, they won't let you down. Visit Atlantic.net to learn more. Yeah, I used to, I worked at Microsoft for the summer and then I worked on the Excel code base. And there are a few rounding errors in Microsoft Excel that the team cannot fix, yep. improve in a more correct way because every spreadsheet in the world that used those functionalities would have different values. So there are a few rounding errors that are exactly as you're saying, they're not correct, they're bugs, but they're specified behavior, so they shouldn't change because people totally depend on Excel to work like that. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's kind of funny because you know the, the legacy code work is what I'm known you know best for, but I'm actually working on a, a book right now which started out being about error handling, and then it became, um, it's moving more towards removing discontinuity in software, which is a bit abstract. But one of the things I'm coming down to as a concept is the difference between the domain and the extended domain. So the domain is kind of like, this is the way math works for say Excel, for instance, but the extended domain is like, this is the way math works for us and we need to preserve this behavior. And it's like, there's a bit of dissonance sometimes in developers' minds between the extended domain and the domain. And that can lead to some, you know, a bit of trouble. There's a bit of training involved in understanding what the true extended domain is for an application. Oh, nice, I like that. So if you add a new feature, you will test some parts of the code base as well before you start adding the new feature. and how far should you go in that? When, when can I feel safe to start doing the real programming, quote unquote, to really add the features instead of still testing and adding tests? That's a very good question. And I think the thing I always come back to with this is what would you do if you weren't doing any testing at all, right? It's kind of, um, and this is a situation that so many developers are in, absolves us of our responsibility for going and making correct changes within a code base. And what that really means, how far we have to go, really varies depending upon the developer. Um, at the end of the day, the only thing we have to save us is our judgment. Um, so I may write more tests than you do, for instance. It may depend upon the time of the day, how tired I am, how confident I feel in a particular area. But I think it's really just an issue of engineering judgment, how far we go with this. I don't like to say, hey, you know, it's like a, a full branch coverage is exactly what's necessary for this particular thing. because. You know, those are really kind of artificial uh, criteria. Um, at the end of the day, we are responsible. And so we just have to do as much testing as it takes to assure ourselves that what we are doing is the best professional work that we can. Oh, that's a pity. I was really looking for, Michael <laughs> says 71% is fine, so I can go. <laughs> yeah, no, I think nobody can take anybody's responsibility away for this. And essentially that's, you know, it's good because, you know, the, the real the real thing for us in the industry is to, raise our judgment level and our skill level and um, put something out there and somebody says, yay, I met the criterion and they don't pay attention to what's really necessary. That's probably the worst outcome that can occur. And probably there's a domain dependency as well. There is a difference between uh, building a CMS and building software for a nuclear power plant or a cancer treatment facility. Yep, totally. So you cannot talk about code bases as if they're interchangeable. Mm -hmm. So far, we've been just saying testing, but of course there are different forms of testing. So the, the testing we're talking about, you have this legacy code base and you want to add tests before adding a feature. What, what tests are we actually meaning there? Unit tests, integration tests, performance tests? 
Uh, it depends again upon the context. Performance tests come up at times, you know, when people have um, uh, hard performance criteria that they need to go and meet. Um, but for the most part, you know, when I'm working with teams, it's usually functionality. And again, I go back to that thing I was saying earlier: is like, what do I need? What do I need as a developer to assure myself that I'm doing the right thing? And um, you know, it, it's funny when when I first um, released the book, I spoke almost exclusively about unit tests, and I kept hearing people talk about. Well, you really should go and try to sort of like um, characterize this, you know, systems at like the component or the system level. Um, introduce a lot of smoke tests before you make any changes at all. And I, I have, um, I'm going to say, sympathy for that point of view. I think it's, you know, it's a valid uh, way of looking at things. But the thing that I noticed though is that essentially you can spend a lot of time uh, writing tests far away from where you're going to be making your changes, and um, not quite getting the coverage you want, or basically getting coverage and then getting to the point where when something breaks, it's kind of unclear where the change was that caused it to break. So yeah, higher level tests are valuable, but I tend to really try to drive my test writing uh, from the particular change I'm making and how do I basically give myself assurance that this is working. Uh, testing things at the higher level to make sure that you really, you know, you still are producing results that you care about and stuff like that is a very valuable thing, but I kind of consider that to be a little bit off to the side of this type of testing. And besides testing, I know it's our favorite topic, yeah. but what other techniques can you use in legacy code bases to not break stuff, to say it scientifically? Yeah, to not break stuff. Think real hard, right? I guess <laughs> is the main thing. And of course, there's code review, there's pair programming, um, these, there's all these other things. Um, for the most part, though, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, do you, you can try to go and get information about your system through um, you know monitoring and all these other things and use that to try to understand what's going on. And that's great. It's a question of what's repeatable. And so I keep coming back to testing with that. You know, having said that though, I, 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 I'm not like a, a testing zealot at all. I think testing is great, but it's also, it's a matter of going and getting as much information as you need from a variety of different sources. One thing that comes up over and over again is um, if you're working in a statically typed language, quite often you can basically get away without writing certain tests to do some refactoring because um, you know through the type rules that certain things um, are not being are not breaking. And um, that can be kind of handy. So a simple example of this, one that I've done quite often in a number of different languages, is extracting a class from another class. And um, in doing that, you go and you create a reference to a new class and all the things that were fields in the current class that are moving over onto the new class immediately we'll get a little red squiggle underneath them because the um, uh, the field doesn't exist anymore. And you can just go ahead and place, you know, reference to the new the new object in that place and say, okay, new object dot and then field name. And then the red squiggle, squiggle goes away. So you're kind of like using the type system, the type checking of the compiler as a set of tests also. And again, when you take that expansive vision of uh, what is the goal, the goal is to be able to understand more or understand what we need to understand to make changes. Um, you have a lot of things you can kind of leverage in that way. So maybe you're also saying that maintaining a, a code base, a legacy code base in a static language has some advantages and maybe it's a little bit easier than in a dynamically typed language. Is that also um, correct? I think it is. I, there's a, a strange thing that comes up for me right now, practically every place in life and software engineering is not excluded from life. It's part of it, right? <laughs> and that's that anything that you, you can say that one thing is better than something else but then it's also worse than something else also because it's all trade-offs. Yeah. So for instance, it's like I, 
I come down squarely in the middle of the um, dynamic static um, language debate. I love them both and in different contexts. I think that um, static gives you, um, it gives you a lot of feedback as you're writing code. I think that people working in dynamic, quite often they're happy to go and actually choose when they get the feedback and the feedback can come through tests as opposed to going and having your compiler interrupt you and tell you, you know, at each step, whether something is still in the realm of, of uh, working or not. And so there's like essentially different affordances for these two different models. So yes, definitely static does have, have some advantage. It has some, uh, there are some liabilities also. You just have to basically figure out what trade-off works best for you in your organization. So sadly, not everyone shares our love for testing. <laughs> yeah. uh, Especially, there's sort of a new movement somewhat started by Facebook, and they say, move fast and break things. Mm -hmm. Just add stuff, and we will see what happens later, testing, or sort of a waste of time. It's not needed. We will figure it out. Yep. How do you feel about that? Can this be done in legacy code bases? Are they entirely wrong? Is this another trade-off? No, I don't, think, I don't think they're wrong at all. I think it's actually something that works very well in a particular context, and you have to figure out whether, you met, whether you're in that context or not. Um, if you have lots and lots of smart developers and you're able to go and actually roll out something progressively so that when there are mistakes, you can sort of um, correct them almost immediately. And when the potential loss is low, you know, I don't think anybody's gonna lose their life over Facebook, right? Then that's perfectly reasonable. Um, so I think so much of software engineering is for us understanding what uh, the problem is well enough to go and figure out what we can actually do and what affordances we get from particular situations. So yeah, a legacy code base, I don't know. Could we call Facebook's code legacy code? Very yeah, I guess so. I mean, they don't have tests right? because they just move uh, fast and break stuff. So yeah. I guess it's legacy for the most part. I haven't been there. I'll bet they have tests. You know, they have. Yeah, they must have some. It cannot be all. Just let's see what happens. So, but I think that the thing that's amazing with this, the thing that's important to recognize, is that the feedback loop is still there, right? So in testing, the feedback loop is something that's um, it's in house. We kind of run our tests and see that things are working properly. Uh, with them, it's I guess progressive release and go ahead and sort of get the feedback from it. And um, you know, to the degree that risk is low, they can do that very well, and um, that's fine. Uh, yeah. So if you generalize to no tests but feedback, then they're basically doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's funny. Uh, a friend of mine, Fred George, wrote up uh, something, or actually did some presentations years ago on something called programmer anarchy, and he was outlining a process where you didn't have to test. You could use any language you wanted to for your microservices. You could throw code away continuously. Um, you didn't need any managers. And it's like you could look at this and say, wow, does this mean that all, all that we know about software engineering is wrong? But he had a particular domain that he was applying this in that basically uh, was a sweet spot where you could get away with these particular things. And it definitely doesn't apply in every single situation. But I think that the real lesson for that is um, recognizing that, uh, yeah, as I said earlier, understanding the constraints in your environment well enough to go and know what you can get away with in a good way and what you really need be successful at software development. Uh, that understanding of context is vital. So again, it's all about the domain. Definitely. So we've, we've talked about dependency breaking already a little bit, which mm -hmm. is one of the things you advocate in the book to make code more testable, to make it easier to test. Mm -hmm. Can you define what dependency breaking means for you? What is it? Uh, yeah, when you're writing tests, Quite often, there are things that can happen in your code base that you wouldn't want to have happen in a test environment. Things like file I.O. or going across a network. I mean, it's not that those aren't legitimate things to test, but 
if we can abstract those things away, quite often we can test the the pure computational bits of our code in many cases. And um, so sort of like being able to break those dependencies to be able to go and test the logic in isolation is a you know vital part of what I do. So uh, you know in procedural or object-oriented code bases, it's a matter of going and finding these places. Um, I call them seams, where you can easily replace one thing with another so that you can, um, yeah, kind of like abstract yourself away from some external dependency that is getting in your way. And uh, yeah, so I did write up a number of these seams that are available in different programming languages. Can you give a concrete example of a sure. seam? It might feel a bit abstract to people not familiar with the concept. Definitely, definitely. So if you're working in an object-oriented code base, say that you have a function, we'll call it function A, just because I'm not, you know, uh, don't feel like making up a domain right now. We have a function A, and it's um, it calls a function B, and both A and B are on the same class. If B does something that is problematic for us under test, like say it goes and you know, opens a socket and sends something across, and you don't want to go and have you don't want to be receiving that socket request you know, in your test harness. What you can do is you can override the class that both of these methods are on, excuse me, subclass the class that both of these are on, and override B to go and replace it with um, something that will just go and return back the result that you care about in a testing situation. So A is calling something called B, but it's not calling the real B, it's calling a fake B. And the reason this is possible is because essentially a an overridden function call is a seam in object-oriented development. It's a place where when you look at the body of A, you'll see the call to B, but it doesn't have to be the real B, it could be something else. So the key thing about a seam is that you can look at the code and it looks the same, but you can break the dependency without changing the code in that particular place. You break the dependency elsewhere. And that's what a seam is. And so another example to kind of like carry it into another language, a wildly different one, um, say you're working in C for instance, and you have some some calls to some external service and you don't want to make those calls in a testing situation. You could take those calls and put them into a separate library and then you can basically link and link either to the production library for production or link to the library of mocks for testing. And so the scene there is like something I call the link scene, which is basically saying that we can replace these calls at link time. In the example I gave a bit earlier, um, that's uh, what I would call an object scene and that basically happens at runtime. You're able to go and replace one with another. Um, based upon whether you instantiate the class or the subclass. Every language provides different seams. And um, it's just, um, it's advantageous to go and basically see your code in the, in that, um, uh, through that lens. Uh, then you can basically figure out what you can leverage uh, in order to go and uh, make testing easier. Um, and if you don't have the proper seams, you can inject them. You kind of place them in place so that you can make the testing easier as well. How would you do that? Add a seam? Because it seems to be a property a system already has that you can exploit. Can you give an example of adding a seam to an existing system? Oh yeah, definitely. Suppose we have like um, some long method in an object-oriented language in a class. And um, part of that method is going and doing uh, uh, some file I.O., for instance. And maybe it's the last third of the method. We can extract that last third into a new method, right? Then we can subclass the entire class and override that method we've extracted so that it's out of our way. So just the idea of, ex just that ability to go and extract something can introduce a seam where there wasn't one previously. And in your book, you have a number of techniques to make code more, more testable. Mm -hmm. what, what is your favorite technique? Or maybe I should ask your most widely applicable technique, the most useful one. Okay, and it's, it's great because it's so simple. But when I wrote up the book, the last section of the book is just a, 
a collection of, I think, about 20, 24, 25 dependency breaking techniques. But the one I keep reaching for over and over again is very simple. It's just parameterizing the constructor. If you have something which is um, like a, a dependency that you find problematic in test, um, see if you can pass the objects related to that through the constructor. And I guess to get into a little bit of detail with this, you can have, you know, a, say you have a constructor for a class that accepts three arguments and those are necessary for the creation of the class. Adding a fourth one, creating a new constructor that has a fourth argument, and that's one that you would pass in, say, a mock or a production object for. And then basically leaving the old constructor there so that people can use it in production. But the other constructor that you introduce is there for you to go and uh, supply mocks under test. And that allows you to cut out a lot of dependencies. Um, it isn't just things like, say, file I.O. that I was talking about earlier. Sometimes you have dependencies on singletons and all these other things that um, are problematic for you. And uh, just being able to go and sort of like pass the objects related to those into the constructor as opposed to um, uh, just living with the dependency uh, can be uh, useful. And as you already said, there's a long list of techniques at the end of the book. And this book is, it's already an old book. It's over 10 years old. So yes, yeah. are there any of the techniques you would remove that maybe they don't make a lot of sense in hindsight, or maybe they don't make a lot of sense now since people are programming in a different way? I, you know, I don't think I would because I think that people, you know, it's like, hey, we're talking about legacy code, right? There's a lot of old code out there. Um, so they're... There are techniques that come up in a variety of different languages that would still keep there. I think I would um, adjust the guidance and say, look, you, there's just a handful that you should go to directly uh, because these are going to cover about 90% of your cases. So I think I would phrase things that way. I think a, a deeper thing I would probably explain as well is um, I gave a talk a long time ago. It was called The Deep Synergy Between Testability and Good Design. And it was based upon this insight that quite often... Um, the things that make testing difficult are things which are already design problems. So if we fix the design problem, then testing becomes easy. And I think that's really, if we're attuned to that idea, we actually end up writing code in different ways, uh, in better ways. Uh, so to the degree that we find problems in testing, we should really be asking ourselves, isn't there a better design here that we can use? So. Yeah, so testing is sometimes secretly revealing design issues and not really source code, line of code level issues. Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, so for example, you know, say you have, um, say you may have some method in some large class that goes and sends email, writes to a file, and does this, that, and the other thing. And then you have to ask yourself, you know, what is the domain of this object? Why should it be doing all these things? Maybe it's something which does some computational work. Maybe it should be only about that computational work. And maybe the um, other things should be abstracted out in such a way that they, um, they wouldn't be dependencies for this particular class. Uh, so yeah, following the single responsibility principle can get you out of a lot of these situations. Uh, when you have um, really good separation of concerns, then it makes a lot of things much easier. And going back to the book, are there any techniques you would add that you overlooked or maybe picked up over the last decade? No, I think um, I regret not, being, not having placed the um, strangler application pattern in there. Um, as well as something I don't really use, have much of a name for, but um, the idea of going and running, um, replacing a computation with another computation and running both in parallel until you're satisfied that um, you're producing the same results in production. That's a technique I use over and over again. As well, um, I think there's some very interesting stuff around trying to get rid of singletons and code bases that sometimes uh, when you do this, you want to go and have this pristine state where 
uh, you're not passing, you know, uh, objects down some you know, multiple level of calls to go and get them where they need to be. Often it's not really practicable to go and try to um, eliminate singletons completely, but you can kind of consolidate them. Um, and I call this the idea of like a component hub, um, a place where you can kind of group singletons together so that, you know, an area of code that maybe uses five singletons, at least there's one place where you can go and mock them all out at once or, um, uh, you know, assess how they're being used. Uh, so that's like a consolidation pattern as well. So yeah, there's a lot of things along those lines. Um, as well, you know, it's funny with this because um, uh, I, in the book, I didn't really touch on the, um, uh, the people aspect of this. And I think there's a lot there that really needs to, that should be addressed. So what would that be? What, what people advice would you put in a V2 of the book? That's funny because now, now that I say people, I feel it's a little bit like process in a way, but it's more, it's more about how we decide what to do in an organization. And so I've been kind of beating this drum for a while in talks at um, conferences and with clients that I'm working with. But I think that Agile kind of steered us wrong a little bit. Agile did many good things in the industry. But one of the things was it got us communicating between business and development in terms of features and estimates. And, um, you know, that's really great, but it's like, um, I don't know how many of your listeners have heard of uh, Joel Spolsky's law of um, leaky abstractions, that whenever you have an abstraction that's non-trivial, it tends to leak in the sense that you can't abstract away something fully. And I think that in terms of process, we have that same kind of thing going on, that if we see software only in terms of features and estimates, then we kind of miss, uh, we don't pay attention to something very important, which is what is the quality of the code and what is the readiness for change? And um, if that's not really on the table and discussed with business, then we're going to start you know, making suboptimal, suboptimal choices and make things a bit uglier because we, we're not really monitoring it. Um, so what I like to do with people now is set things up in such a way that the business understands at least enough about the architecture that you can go and give them like a bit of a health grade. And you can show them, okay, well, on a scale of one to 10, this is how this component is doing in terms of um, readiness for change. And then you can take that and factor it into your decision about which features you want to add in the code base. And um, I think if I had to sum it up in a sentence, what this is about is basically making the um, reality of the software transparent to the organization. Uh, because I think we've already seen what happens when we try to hide that. The thing that we did early in Agile was to go and say, look, the code is the developer's responsibility. Business doesn't need to know about the code. And as a result, you know, um, we, it tends to be suboptimal. We want to, we want to, um, we want to satisfy business and quite often we'll possibly inadvertently make um, choices that don't really lead to good outcomes over time. So transparency in that regard, I think, is a, a vital thing in, in terms of going and um, uh, forestalling legacy problems, making sure that we have uh, understanding that this is an asset that we have to go and keep over time in organizations. Um, it's real. You know, the code is real. I love that idea, but how does that work practically? You, ha you have a customer and you want them to understand what part of the source code is mo has more potential for velocity, is easier to change. Mm -hmm. Do you express that in terms of uh, coverage or code smells? Or do you show them the source code? Like, look how hard it is to change it. It doesn't have any tests. How well, do you have that com communication? I, I think people that well, it's funny with this because the at the end of the day, it's like um, we know the code better than the business does. We have to be trusted, right? Uh, so I think a lot of this really comes down to a subjective judgment because I don't think we're really at the place now in the industry where we have metrics that um, will give us the complete truth about whether something is easy to change or hard to change. 
so much of that depends upon a lot of other factors. So getting a team together and, you know, if you have a system that has maybe five or seven components, having them based upon their subjective judgment grade the quality of the code base is um, a valuable thing to do. I think it's a bit of a rabbit hole that we can go down to go and say, look, we're going to go and sort of like uh, measure line count and cyclomatic complexity and come up with a grade for these things because those things don't get to the core thing, which is how easy is it for us to modify this thing? I think practically every developer has some gut sense when they look at code, if they have experience um, about what will get in the way and what won't. And so it's, it becomes another form of estimation. So you would maybe rank the modules or the features in terms of easiness to change? Um, that's one way of doing it. Uh, I basically, it's really grading when I've done it with um, teams. There's a guy named Colin, Colin Brecht, who basically was at, um, I was uh, hosting a legacy code track at QCon uh, a couple months ago in London. And um, he was on my track and he was basically showing what he was doing with his organization. And um, it was uh, color coding. Um, different components. He'd create like an architecture diagram and say, look, you know, this area is hot, this area is green, meaning it's cool and it's, you know, easy for us to go and change. The, the real power with this particular thing is doing it over time so that business and the entire organization can see the effect of their decisions. You know, isn't it weird that quite often we do retrospectives and it becomes more about, you know, how many stories did we get done and, you know, uh, how do we feel about the work and all these other things, but it doesn't become about what state did we leave the code in, right? Uh, so I, I don't think there's any one standard technique for this, but you can use colors, you can use kind of like a, a numeric grading, you know, for particular areas of code. Um, the thing is to be able to do this like once every couple of weeks and get people uh, seeing the trends so that they can, and you can start talking to business in, uh, in, ter in, uh, in those terms and say, okay, well, you want this feature and this feature is going to impact these three areas because you can see from the diagram uh, and based upon the history that, you know, this area is kind of tough to deal with right now. So we can do it, but you know, it's like it's going to take more time and you need to understand that. Um, and then you can have this conversation about, you know, uh, what, what are we ready to do? And sometimes it's not going to go your way as a developer because some things are necessary for market. But basically putting all that information out on the table makes decision making um, uh, much more informed. And that's really the goal. Um, yeah, so concretely, you would say in your retrospective, you, you, you don't want to talk just about stories, user stories. You also want to talk about the state of the code base, the, co the, the technical debt you have yeah. and track over time which modules are doing better than others yep. and then communicate that with business. Is that mm -hmm. a good summary? Yep, that's it. And the thing that's tough is that quite often people look at this and say, that's, oh, no, if we do this, we'll be micromanaged by the organization. And um I haven't really seen that in practice. I think it's just, um, it's really more that these these are real real impacts of um, development. And uh, to the degree that we're aware of them, you know, we're better off. So why do you think that is, that people are afraid that it'll get micromanaged? Is that because of previous experiences or is it just they have a wrong idea of what business will do? It can be both. And the thing is, in some cases, it, it can happen. You know, um, it's, you know, in any um, business, you have to make uh, decisions based upon short-term and long-term all the time. And it may be that for a particular business, you need to make something which is going to have negative impact on the code base in the short term. That's just necessary. That's fair. But uh, I think, yeah, um, it can be history. Some people have um, organizations where there is um, history of that sort of thing happening. It can be pretty bad. Um, but there's also a lot of kind of like, oh, my gosh, if I do this, then, you know, they're going to do that. Uh, kind of like predicting the f a future which may not happen. So like everything else, you've got to try out and see who you're interfacing with and uh, 
uh, see if you can go and get that kind of level of communication. Yeah, so like many things in software engineering, also legacy code is mainly about the domain and mainly about communication. I think that's a lovely summary of our entire interview. Is there anything you want to add still? I don't know, not particularly. I think uh, I think things are getting better and that's great. I, I, I think that sometimes we sort of beat ourselves up about legacy code saying if we had just basically made all these proper decisions, then things would be much better than they would be otherwise. But I think there's... Um, there's an aspect to legacy code, which is really kind of natural in a way. It's kind of like um, as you incrementally change things, methods tend to get a little bit longer, classes get bigger, modules kind of grow. And this is really a natural growth process that happens in anything that's alive. And I'm not going to say that code is alive, but I think that anything that kind of grows in a piecemeal fashion ends up having the same behavioral characteristics. So I think that that's a better frame for us is to basically sort of like see code and kind of imagine it was like a a living thing that we were caring for. And um, when we see that, it's not really a matter of us blaming ourselves when things are starting to go a little bit off the skids, but recognizing that we we have the opportunity to kind of like interject and to actually go and do something about it. And, um, you know, that the the way that code kind of falls apart in a way is a natural process, but we're, we, we can be part of that natural process and help bolster it up too. And that's a powerful thing to realize. Great, thanks for that. So obviously, if people want to know more, they should totally read your book because it's awesome. But do you have other resources that people can check out if they really want to learn more about legacy from you? Uh, yeah, my website is r7krecon.com. It's r7krecon.com. We'll make sure that that is in the show notes. Okay, sounds good. And um, Twitter handle is mfeathers. And um, it's not exclusively about software. I just, you know... As is Twitter, I basically go and write up random things, but I can be contacted through that as well. Uh, so yeah, those are the contact points for me. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for being on the show. It was lovely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening.